0: Hey everyone, welcome back to the Four Four Three Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark the Liberty, and joining me today is Corey, the election
1: soapbox knockrainer. I'm story in <laughs> advance for one of our
0: topics, <laughs> as Cory's is hinting at. At some point during this episode, we are going to open that can of worms on election hacking. Uh, but before that we will circle back with where we left you on the last podcast on a discussion of the super serious OpenSSL vulnerabilities that were disclosed on November 1st so just last week and then we will end with a discussion on Apple's new upgrades to their overall security initiatives and bug bounty program Um, and with that let's go ahead and uh, swipe our way in swiper no swiping
1: wait is that copyright am I now in trouble with our legal department again
0: What? So let's uh, start the story with kind of where we left off last week, where the topic had come up of this upcoming OpenSSL critical vulnerability that was going to be uh, patched and disclosed on November 1st, so the day after we released our episode last week. Um, I know sitting, I don't want to speak for Corey, but in my chair, like I had some, a little bit of anxiety waiting for this thing to come out, a uh, concern that it was going to be the next heart bleed issue, which was the last critical vulnerability that. Yeah, with critical,
1: with, with the critical rating it originally had, we'll talk about it, it, it seemed that way. And that's what all the pundits said too. I mean, if you followed all the announcements going about the pre, uh, the pre-notification, Many people literally compared it to potentially HeartBeat because Critical has that same level of flaw. So I was with you. I mean, we people on Reddit have been discussing this before it was even released. So I think the whole industry was expecting something pretty big.
0: Yep. Uh, but we ended the episode. Basically, uh, my hot take on it was this was either going to be a the is falling moment again in the world of encryption, or at least OpenSSL, or was going to be a bit of a whimper. And the reality is it did actually come out somewhere in the middle of that. Um, So when they published their disclosure alongside the new OpenSSL 3.0.7 release on November 1st, they actually had downgraded what was going to be the critical issue down to just a high severity issue. And we'll get into why that was uh, a little bit later, Um, but I think we can first jump into exactly what the vulnerabilities were. Uh, And I guess in order to do that, it's time for a little bit of story time and certificates 101. Uh, so, first off, in the world of cryptographic certificates or digital certificates, they're typically a way to prove the uh, identity of a system or a person out there on the internet or on some untrusted, or I guess even a trusted network. Uh, we use them every day when we browse the websites, where every website you go to that is encrypted with HTTPS has a certificate that proves its identity. If you go to WatchGuard, there will be a certificate for watchguard.com signed by, I think, DigiCert. uh, And your browser, just, I guess, because it was arbitrarily chosen to something we trust, trusts the DigiCert root certificate authority, thus it signs everything it signs. Uh, When it comes to certificates, typically uh, they can be given to a single entity, so the domain watchguard.com, in which case that value That watchguard.com value would be in the subject of the certificate. Uh, But you can also get a certificate for a bunch of different entities. So watchguard.com, www.watchguard.com, api.watchguard.com, cloud. Whatever. You see, you get it. Each of those can be added to the exact same certificate using this extension called the subject alternative name extension. Uh, Very commonly used on the internet to be able to create one certificate that covers a whole bunch of different subdomains. Uh, That subject alternative names extension, it isn't just limited to domains, though. You can throw other things in there, too, like email addresses. So you can actually use certificates to prove the identity of a client connecting to a server. That's called uh, mutual authentication. So not just your browser proving that watchguard.com is real, but the server can request that you, the connecting client, can prove your identity, too. A good example of that is with WPA Enterprise Authentication for wireless networks, uh, where you've got a certificate saved on your laptop, your client, whatever, and it has to prove to the wireless access point that it's been signed by a CA that your wireless network or domain trusts. Um, So that's certificates one-on-one. We'll get into why that's important in a little bit. The next big thing we have to hit on is puny code, puny code, puny code, however you want to pronounce it. Um, so, I was going to say, I guess I don't have a huge uh, a,
1: a huge opinion on it. I've always called it puny code since I think, you know, I thought of puny as in small. But the truth is, this is to extend a character set. So
0: maybe that's the wrong interpretation for that one. Yep. <laughs> so that's actually a good point. So Corey mentioned the word character set there. Uh, whenever you like go and type in something in your browser or request a certificate for a domain, um, that those letters and numbers have to be encoded some way into whatever your request is, and one of the ways of encoding that is using this encoding algorithm or character set called ASCII. ASCII. Oh my goodness. Um, so ASCII is one of the more common ones, but it only uh, is large enough to hold like A through Z, capital and lowercase, some numbers, some symbols, and that's just about it. If you wanted to encode, say, a Japanese letter or a Korean letter or many other international letters, the character set for ASCII is not actually large enough to hold all those. Instead, you use something like Unicode or maybe a different um, character encoding algorithm. Unfortunately, some older programs or systems, whatever you want to call them, only support ASCII. So as an example, certificates, um, just because of, I guess, how old they are or how some legacy backwards compatibility they need. Uh, with some of these fields like the subject alternative name um, some of the values in them have to be encoded in ascii so how do you handle a like foreign language web domain within the confines of only using ascii characters this is where puny code comes in so it's basically an algorithm to take these international character encodings and map them out into ascii so it starts by prepending this xn to the start of the string Uh, That's to tell whatever is ingesting this that, hey, this is a Unicode string. And then it uses this algorithm to say, okay, at this location, there is this Unicode number character in there. And at this location, there's this Unicode character number in there. And then it encodes all of that into, I think it's like base 36 or something like that, um, to ultimately give you an ASCII string that things that know what they're looking for can then decode back into a Unicode string of foreign language characters. Um, so you can use Punycode for like web domains, um, and in certificates specifically, you can use them in the domain for an email address. So like let's say Mark at myemaildomain.com, I could encode that myemaildomain.com using Punycode. Interestingly enough, the mailbox name itself you cannot use Punycode for. So I couldn't have like fancy, you know, my name spelled in some foreign language at markemaildomain.com. A bit of a limitation there, and we'll get into kind of why that's important in a second, too. So that was certificates 101 really fast and PunyCode 101 really fast. The vulnerabilities involve both of these, and specifically how OpenSSL handles decoding PunyCode in the subject alternative name fields within certificates. So in OpenSSL 3.00 to 3.06, there's two vulnerabilities in the PunyCode decoder which basically allow an attacker to create a certificate with a carefully cro- chosen subject alternative name field that then lets them insert malicious puny code, which when the deco- decoder goes to decode it, uh, it triggers a buffer overflow within OpenSSL. Now, there's some limitations within this. Uh, so first and foremost, all of this decoding happens after the certificate is validated, meaning it has to be signed by a trusted certificate authority or at least a certificate authority that you as the server receiving this, or you as the client receiving it from a server trusts. Uh, That subject alternative name, so it's got to use a Punicode domain name in it, Um, but the uh, mailbox name for it must actually be a a Unicode encoded uh, mailbox name. So specifically, it needs to use what's called the SMTP UTF-8 mailbox address, which is a bit of a a mix of both in there. Um, And Assuming you get all these combinations right, it then allows an attacker to either overflow the stack with four bytes of arbitrarily chosen data, that's the first vulnerability, or overflow the stack by an arbitrary number of decimal characters, just the decimal dot, I think it's 46 in ASCII. So that first one, CVE-2022-3602, is what was originally a critical vulnerability because in general, if you as an attacker can... Uh, overflow a buffer with arbitrarily chosen data, you have the potential of triggering remote code execution uh, within that program. Uh, now, that said, the reason it was downgraded, uh, they gave OpenSSL gave actually a pretty big statement, which I'll get into in a second. But it basically boiled down to the, the limitations of actually successfully getting RCE on uh, any system using OpenSSL. Again, those limitations. Not, not sure if you said this, by the way,
1: but just for a reminder for acronyms: RCE, remote code execution. As you know, he's, you said it before, but just in case people haven't heard the acronym.
0: So first off, limitations to the vulnerabilities. The decoding happens after the certificate chain is validated, so the certificate has to be signed by a trusted CA. So they have to miss that maliciously crafted domain, or you have to prove that it's a quote-unquote legitimate domain within the confines of a certificate authority and that you are the owner of it. Uh, At least one of the intermediate certificate authorities used to sign the malicious one must have a a naming constraint for email addresses, either explicitly permitting them or explicitly excluding some, because that's what triggers that validation uh, the malicious certificate must have a SMTP UTF-8 mailbox mailbox format email address in at least one of these subject alternative name extensions. That for, uh, mailbox address must have one portion of its domain as puny code, and the encoded puny code must be specifically chosen by the attacker to trigger the decode vulnerability and overflow the stack. So a bit of hoops you have to jump through just to even potentially exploit it. We'll get into some of the protections that... Programs using open SSL might have to protect against memory based exploits um, But the barrier of getting a trusted certificate authority to sign Something with this puny code domain uh, specifically an email address Is a bit of it's not a trivial task and so that does make it a little more difficult to attack um, yeah, I'd say, I mean, you promised we'll talk about memory
1: protections and how they limit this, but even assuming, by by the way, we should talk about that because I do think there's still risk because a lot of memory protections are pretty ubiquitous on modern operating systems, mobile and normal, but there's a lot of hardware and devices out there that might still have something turned off. It's It's simple to turn them on. Most operating systems come with them by default, but they do... Uh, if you you have a resource sensitive device they slow things down a little bit they the you know either memory randomization or other thing other things being used but i i one thing i thought about a little later is the 4 bytes if, if you want to nerd out about memory corruption flaws, it's not just having a buffer you can overflow, you know, you have to find a way to also get that buffer to a control, a point, you know, something that they call the, the stack pointer, which is different memory, com- you know, it's either EIP on 32-bit systems or something slightly different on 64-bit systems. But the point is, you need a little room in the buffer. The smallest full shellcode I've ever seen is seven bytes. Uh, And by the way, most shellcode is much more than seven bytes. And, uh, you know, a lot of exploit frameworks use really nifty staged shellcode loading processes. So when you have tiny buffers, there are little you know, steps you can take. I won't go into technical detail, but things you can do to get away with the tiny bytes get you something that you then load shellcode in stages. But I think even shellcode stagers are pretty big, like they're bigger than four bytes. So even forgetting the memory protections, uh, you know, it doesn't make it impossible, but you'd have to use a lot
0: of tricks to really get four bytes to do something. Yep. So let's actually... Dive into OpenSSL's like there's a couple paragraphs from a statement they put out a little bit after the uh, the releases came out. They said that quote during the week of pre-notification, several organizations performed testing and gave us feedback on the issue, uh, looking at the technical details of the overflow and the stack layout on common architectures and platforms. Firstly. We had reports that on certain Linux distributions, the stack layout was such that the four bytes overwrote an adjacent buffer that was yet to be used, and therefore uh, there was no crash or ability to cause remote code execution. Secondly, many modern platforms implement Stack Overflow protections, which would mitigate against the risk of remote code execution and u- that usually lead to a crash. However, as OpenSSL is distributed as source code, we have no way of knowing how every platform and compiler combination has arranged the buffers on the stack and therefore remote code execution may still be possible on some platforms. Our security policy states that if a vulnerability might be described as critical that a vulnerability might be described as critical if remote code execution is considered likely in common situations. Uh, we no longer felt that this rating applied to CBE 2022-3602, and therefore it was downgraded on the first of November before being released to high. Basically, they're saying it's possible, but because it's not yeah, likely yeah. in most situations, it's only a high. Likely or common?
1: It, I, I even likely is not. I mean, common is what I triggered on, but we're saying the same thing. I think you know, like like you said, they're acknowledging what I did—that not all systems actually turn on these memory protection mechanisms, but it is common it's actually the most common situation i would argue that not having them is uncommon nowadays so i agree with that but i think the real takeaway here who who gives a crap you know it's only nerds like us that care that it went from critical to high the important thing is even though they might think this is mostly a dos in most situations uh you should patch it anyways i mean this is definitely worth patching even as a high Uh, It is certainly possible, but it's certainly not the widespread thing that uh,
0: a lot of folks believed when it was first rated critical. Yeah, it is. I mean, it is still a high severity vulnerability. It can still, like you said, it's a denial of service issue at this point, not a a easily exploitable remote code execution issue. But even then, denial of service is still something that can cause mayhem on a network or a appliance or a service that you use uh, if it is not addressed correctly. So. Bottom line, still patch it, but I did at least breathe a little bit of a sigh of relief uh, when the details came out.
1: We were already not just to make sure our our product, by the way, we should talk about it. Our product is mostly unaffected, right, Mark? Uh, You know, this does, as as was mentioned even in our last podcast, and as Mark said as well, only affects the 3.0.x line of OpenSSL. So if you have products that haven't gone that far and are still using the in life, the still perfectly valid lower versions, you're not going to be affected by this. So I think for the most part, you don't have to worry about in WatchGuard products. But yeah, when we thought it was critical, we even wanted to to enumerate our systems very heavily just in case internally, which we're still doing, of course, but uh, it took a little
0: bit of the pressure off. Exactly. So I guess now we go on waiting until the next critical issue comes out. Man, hopefully not. I mean, the, this is
1: one where if there is a critical, it affects it. You know, this is one of the most widespread platforms out there. So I hope it's another, how long It's 2016 was Heartbleed or something? 2014, yeah, something I think like so. that. Let's hope it's another 10 years before we have to worry about another critical potential.
0: Fingers crossed. Uh, so moving on to the next story, this one's a bit of just an open-ended, want to do uh, a Pick your brain, Corey, because the day after this episode releases is technically election day in the United States for the midterms elections. And I know I mean, sometimes it feels like we've beat the whole hacking elections thing into the ground, but it feels like on point to have a, at least brief discussion on like what the realities around hacking an election or hacking adjacent to an election might look like in the uh, tomorrow, if you're listening to this when the episode comes out. So like. I guess first and foremost, Corey. Like, if I were to pitch the big question to you, like, what is the actual risk of someone, whether it be you know a foreign nation state or some script kitty in their mom's basement, going in and actually changing votes on voting machines to the point where it would affect the election?
1: So I'm going to start with the TLDL, too long didn't listen <laughs> version of this. I guess it's DL since we're talking. Uh, and then we can dive in the details. And I, I'll warn you ahead of time, this this gets pop pop quarry soapbox type things that I want to stay very apolitical. Uh, and by the way, I believe my comments are apolitical. But unfortunately, when I get into the real risk of election results, not election results, but the real risk of elections, uh, you might understand why I'm trying to stay apolitical. But unfortunately, it, it comes up. The TLDR is... This is. I would not worry about a cybersecurity incident affecting our results. Uh, you know, really, everything we've said in the past, Mark, is is true. And those things are. We know threat actors and even state-sponsored threat actors are starting to target election-related things. They haven't, as far as the world knows, we haven't seen them try to widespread change results on actual voting machines but they have been going to sources of information about the election that we have. One, there's public voting databases that you don't even have to hack anything, but also every state has voter registration. And so we've certainly seen attackers, voter registration tends to be web apps that different states put up with different security. And while a bad guy hacking voter registration doesn't change election results directly, it gives threat actors information about voters, you know, what political parties they're affiliated, how often they voted. And it also potentially gives them access to a database that might show the state if someone's registered or not. So why do you care about hacks against voter registration? I think we've never really seen a hack where people have turned off people's registration. I mean, the, the, the most obvious way you could affect election results indirectly is by having someone that is registered. If you can break in that database, you can flip a switch and it will look like they aren't registered. And while there might be a paper trail, if you do a, that timed right on election day, you can disrupt people's ability to vote. You're not changing results, you disrupt their ability. But these hacks have already happened in the past in previous elections. We know they have gotten voter registration information from some states before. I don't think state-sponsored folks that are most likely to be doing this are actually trying to change registration at all. I think it just drives their disinformation campaigns. you know, of the types of ways we've seen external actors affect, try to affect elections, it's mostly social media polarization. It's, it's going to both groups of, or all the groups, if you're a country with multiple parties, and just trying to stir up each party to, you know, to polarize each other. So just having information about, uh, you know, whether the people on this Facebook group are more Republican or Democrat. That's one way you could adjust. You, you you could attack an election, but in this case, you're not attacking the machines that take the votes. You're not attacking the results. You're you're either turning off registration or just using information about registration to set up disinformation. Um, I don't think that's a huge threat, and I will tell you why in a second. For this, uh, I, I don't think it's a likely threat. This this election, and I'll tell you what I think the real threat is soon. When people think of real election hacking, though, if you're a a non-technical person, you're probably just assuming, oh, they somehow changed the results of the votes. And to do that, you would have to hack vote machines and or hack wherever they uh, eventually put the data, the results of those vote machines. Is that possible? Technically, certainly, for sure. We have seen very even specific vulnerabilities in some voting machines that could lead to very niche situations where they would get hacked. But the key thing is most of these voting machines are not connected necessarily to each other. Uh you know, you if you hacked one, you're only getting a tiny bit of that state in one location's vote. So trying to hack many at the same time is hard. Really, it would be better to go after where they store results, and that's actually uh, a harder target, probably even a harder target than voter registration is this theoretically possible and have there been vulnerabilities before that could lead to it sure uh, but it's actually because of really the dis inf- the disorganization of the way we vote in the united states every state basically handling their own many states having different methods different machines sometimes even the same state having multiple types of voting machines it it's really hard to really change the results of elections this way. But I will get to what you should worry about, and it's really not cyber attacks. It's the polarization. It's disinformation and frankly what I think are lies in our own company. And I don't want to get political. Country. Thank you. Country. (laughs) Yeah, no, not our company. Our company doesn't lie. But in our country, you know, without getting political, I don't care what your policy beliefs are. I hope you have policy beliefs you believe in for evidential, you know, evidence-based reasons. I hope you love your political beliefs. I don't care what they are. But there are people in this country that have denied the results of the election. That's factually incorrect. That's not true. Our past elections this has gone to court 60 times. This has gone all the way up to federal courts. Federal courts that happen to be controlled by the by the same members of of one political party that seems to be pushing all of this this lie about the fact that we can't trust our last election. And during this election we see people already Claiming that they believe the election is going to be or is hacked and have have said things that pretty much point to if they don't win, they're automatically going to assume it's it was a false election that has been rigged. You know, if you have those beliefs, I'm not I, I would just say all beliefs should have evidence There's plenty of evidence here for the past election and there will be plenty of evidence for the upcoming election and evidence has specifically ruled this out until you get past conspiratoria theories that don't have any evidence associated with them or you stop focusing on one or two cases that actually there have been cases of single voter election fraud and they did not adjust the results you would this would have to happen on a massive scale and evidence has proven I, I, you know until you can prove in the federal court again the courts that already are weight in this political group's advantage it, it's all just lies so I've always thought the biggest risk to our election even from attacks from state-sponsored external attackers, is more likely to be disinformation, misinformation that makes people either polarized against each other or mistrust the election. What's a surprise to me is I think all the state-sponsored actors are sitting this one out because we're doing it internally. There's part of our party that's already decided this is their strategy, and I personally think it goes against democracy. So. That's my hot take, Mark. I'd, I'd love to hear your opinion. Uh, there's definitely technical hacks that will be possible in the future. I don't even think they're worth describing because they're going to be very hard. There's never been any evidence of them. Meanwhile, I think we know
0: what the real problem is. Is So now going down that, that branch of disinformation though, but bringing it back into the cyber realm. Like what is the potential impact or risk of a like a perception hack? So now imagine you are a random, non-tech savvy person and I don't wanna make fun of Alabama, but let's say Alabama and you know come election day you know you've been hearing this rumblings of the election's going to be rigged and suddenly the state of Alabama elections website goes down due to cyber attack or gets defaced
1: that that's a fantastic point mark and you actually will make me do a 180 on whether or not state external country actors might get involved and what you described this is a perfect time for that kind of thing uh because if what we were what's happening in our own country wasn't happening it would still be an external actors desire to lower our confidence in the election you know if if we have any sort of lowered confidence that the election went well whatever side you're on you know people would question the results and we already know that's a viable method because internally, there's people that are all already lying to, to make people feel that way. And we know that it's had a result on our population. Many, many people seem to believe what I believe is a lie. What I think the evidence shows is a lie. So, you know, your point is anything that does happen even if it's a small thing like a site going offline is just going to fuel the already existing distrust i think the existing distrust today is conspiratorial and not not true but to to your point i now think you're you're right that maybe state-sponsored actors will get involved but it's not to really manipulate anymore it's that they already see what's happening (laughs) from ourselves And doing little DOS attacks and anything that just continues this process, that's, you know, continues this mistrust in our own country with our election system is just going to continue to make it even worse and worse. So I think perception hacks will be a big deal now, even if they have no technical results on the election. We already, we have half the country that that thinks the election already is a fraud, half the country that, doesn't even get it because there's no evidence, and so just doesn't understand why other people think that. That's a perfect
0: situation for perception based hacks or yeah. social engineering. And the unfortunate thing is, like, there's actually been news articles lately about this group of not nation state backed, but at least Russian aligned hacktivists called Killnet that set up a Telegram channel for them specifically going after state websites. And it's been like like you just described like ddos attacks to bring the site offline like not even like defacing it through vulnerabilities on it but my concern is that that would potentially be enough in some cases for someone to go look something funky going on it's all wrong kind of thing that's fine and concern. again
1: i i don't want to get in state to state or or polarized you know republican or democratic politics but we all know that certain states are more important to the election right now because of those politics and and because of our electoral system so it's pretty easy for these external attackers to just pick certain states where they could have the biggest effect on just stirring up more disinformation in the state that people already don't trust the system because they've been lied to and uh you know yeah, I, I, I see why state-sponsored actors would do that for sure. But it's a different kind of hack. Again, I just want to make—I'm sure everyone that listens to this—but I wish normal, when 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 the news talks about election hacking, or, or when people are talking about an actual machine that has like the Dominion machines are all booby-trapped. There's zero evidence of that. You know, I think what has happened is—is is, the the sad thing is. People like us do want to talk about the risk there. You know, there have been election machines that do have significant vulnerabilities. Again, vulnerabilities that would hard be hard to exploit at scale and would really probably not result in huge result changes, but the potential was there. So it's true that those exist, but now because of that other people who don't know about cybersecurity can say they have, oh, I have cybersecurity experts that have pages and pages of information on this dominion. It, it's just not true. It's it's total BS. And it sucks that they're taking advantage of potential that security people want you to understand, but they're they're doing it really as in my opinion, intentional disinformation to honestly remove democracy. Uh, the the only result of this would be the popular vote not being honored when, in my opinion, the election results have not been greatly altered by this tiny fraction of fraudulent voting that happens in this country
0: with well, evidence attached to it. Here's for hoping that we have a safe, secure and uh, uneventful election. Uh, tomorrow as you are listening to this if you pick it up the day it comes out
1: I agree and I hope you've all gone in and and done it even before tomorrow if you have the opportunity in the state you live in and I I would not I I would go vote regardless of all this craziness you know regardless of the things happening it's just too bad that you know I think all Americans are amazing people it's too bad uh, you know some people are believing what I think is a lie yep
0: well, now that we've got Corey all riled up, let's calm him down by pivoting and chatting about his favorite company. Uh, oh so, no! <laughs> uh, last
1: week, well, in this case, I can I can be a fanboy though. I think yeah. even <laughs> if I'm not their number one fanboy, as you always accuse me of.
0: This this is pretty positive news. It is honestly, it's pretty cool. So last week, Apple launched their new security.apple.com webpage, uh, which is basically, I guess, their quote puts it right. It's the spot to quote. Hear about the latest advances in Apple security from our engineering teams, send us your own research, and work directly with us to be recognized and rewarded for helping us keep our customers safe. It's basically this amalgamation of like a security blog from their engineering team on what they're doing to secure their operating systems and products, as well as their new updated bug bounty portal. Um, So they... Broke ground with this with two blog posts on it. One was actually a pretty interesting, like technical post on some memory hardening that they're doing within the XNU operating system. So XNU is it's the operating system used underneath both Mac OS and iOS. Uh, but their second blog post, uh, just talked all about their bug bounty program and some upgrades they're bringing to it. First big takeaway I saw from it is they've actually given out $20 million in total payments. Since the launch of their bug bounty program in 2016, and it used to be invite only it's now open to the public as of, I think, 2019, but $20 million is a huge amount of money to be paying, but it makes sense. Like Apple is the most popular mobile phone in the United States and gaining significant market shares overseas as well, too. So a vulnerability in one of their products could impact a huge number of people.
1: So I'm going to go another way with that. I agree with everything you said just by the the scale of it means you should get a good bounty. But I guarantee you Apple would not, even though iPhone scale had was just as big, say, five years ago, they wouldn't have paid this before. So this is me giving them a little kudos. And I think the other reason they've gone to that scale is you don't start with 20 million bug bounties. if you When you first start testing, when even they first started testing iOS, they were finding a lot of things. So... I I think over time, they have really freaking hardened iOS. You know, it went from tens of thousands of dollar bounties to five years ago, a million dollar bounties. So I think it's not just about their market penetration, but it's a confidence in their code because they've over time scaled the bounty. You know, they, people are not finding much left. That is really remote code. You, you need to get a pretty big remote code execution to get that bounty. And there have not been many million dollar payouts for a while. So beyond just the scale, I think it actually speaks to the security maturity of Mac OS and iOS. You know, they've really hardened their code so that they can confidently raise the bug bounty that high. So it's win-win, great for researchers and great for them. I will admit part of why I'm pointing this out is is, uh, selfish. You can't expect every company to pay bounties like that, even for remote code execution. You know, companies, as they open bug bounty programs, will want to, obviously, internally, you do your own audits to try to find flaws, so bug bounties find nothing. But there will be a period of time where, you know... I think you have to get your code to a certain security maturity before you go to that level of bounties. Don't expect everyone to give you twenty million dollars, even if it's a super popular product.
0: Yeah, and to be clear, twenty million is cumulative over the last six years. They, their top bounty is it's two million, so it's one million for kernel code execution with a two hundred percent modifier if you're able to do it while the device is in lockdown mode. Um, so that said, makes sense. Like, you mentioned that they, they've done a ton to secure their their operating systems and make their devices very difficult to hack. And that has actually impacted security researchers trying to find vulnerabilities in other parts of the system that might be locked out because of those security protections. It's my favorite part. Yeah, and so in recognizing that, in their blog post, they announced that they've started this new initiative called the Security Research Device Program, which is basically a specially fused iPhone, and it allows researchers to do whatever they want on the device without having to bypass some of those security features. Like to the researchers, you get full shell access. You can run any tools you want on it. You can even customize the kernel. And all of these, uh, all the findings you have in that device count towards the bug bounty program too. Really cool initiative from Apple in that case to make it easier for research beyond like just the past what would be blocked because of their actual strong yeah, operating system.
1: This is actually taking away a, a big, uh, you know, th- Otherwise, it's just a black box. So I think this is so cool in that not only have they hardened their phones, but they still want you to find the minor stuff that all kinds of mechanisms wouldn't allow. So having a special device, you know, that researchers can get to still find the little things that, that I I think it's just amazing. They definitely deserve at least a a golf clap for that. Um, I think a little more than a golf clap. Yeah. yeah I, I would say a lot. So no matter what you think of Apple, I, I think they're taking security very seriously. Now, by the way, these smartly, these are also dangerous phones, right? You wouldn't want to use this for real. So I think they have a lot of requirements for only going to certain security researchers that can't leave labs, things like that. Uh, but it's such a, I think it's a pretty cool,
0: cool thing. Yeah, it is a invite only program that you have to apply for that. Like you said, they've got guardrails like they specifically say you can't use it as your daily phone. It's got to stay in the research laboratory that you do your work in because if it does get out there, it does potentially cause a lot of issues for Apple or their their networks and such either way. Like it's cool seeing them do this.
1: And I think it's I, I think they they understand the benefit to their security. They understand by opening their they could have a closed system, and they already have the security mechanisms to protect themselves, so they don't have to do this, and they could still be secure. But one day, someone could find enough of low-hanging chain of vulnerabilities and get in it. So they realized the benefit of opening the kimono a little. And I think is as we get more and more secure IoT devices, whether they be consoles, webcams, we are getting. Uh, You know, depending on your open source, want to customize person, you may not love it. But we're getting more closed systems, and that's good from a security perspective in some way. You know, uh, other than the customize and people wanting to have you know open access to everything, it helps with security. But it also slowly doesn't help in that it obscures hidden things that the closed system might be protecting. So I actually think they're they're you know to me they're They're trendsetting, they're doing something new. And even systems like consoles, I would say consoles were one of the first hardware devices that created a very closed operating system for security purposes. I mean, more specifically piracy, but it's the same flaws that allow both, Uh, which is good. But over time, if it stays closed, internal code might get less and less secure because people aren't getting past gates that would give them you know the ability to find things that might be in deeper subsystems like the kernel so i would love to see other hardware-based manufacturers allow this and i think it's good for them because it will improve even though their closed system is protecting them is effective at blocking known things it will continue their ability to find niche things that you know maybe they wouldn't have found without researchers so should there have been some Apple. other
0: vendors doing similar stuff. Like I remember, I think you were in the same talk at Blackhats. But there's Apples one, yeah, yeah. Defcon with the uh, hacking yeah, the Starlink yeah. terminals. And the researcher noted that uh, they were working with Starlink directly. And when he even bricked his user terminals, Starlink sent him a new one with some special uh, fuses removed that allowed him to continue reflashing firmware on it. Um, so it's it's not unique to Apple, but I do like this idea of enabling uh, Good security researchers to continue their research beyond uh, what is otherwise possible in like a consumer-rated device. As the end result, is you do get a stronger device on the whole. And in general, you can trust a security researcher with a proven track record too.
1: And I assume these devices, besides having the policy-based stop gaps with rules, they probably have technical mechanisms too. If a developer it ever explodes, if you take this, it out
0: of a ten-mile radius. Uh, Uh,
1: maybe that maybe that's 20 years future in our future dystopia so i wouldn't go that far but i'm sure they probably will at the very least disable and maybe never work with that security researcher again so i'm sure they'll do a lot to watch this and make sure people don't abuse it
0: but it's a good step for sure and that said how long until we see some dark web forum post on apple uh whatever device for sale on the underground how much uh are you willing to pay for it? I bet one of these in the wrong hands would go for quite a bit of money. Oh, for sure. So either way, like really cool stuff. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing whatever their uh, their Bug Bounty Hall of Fame... Actually, I don't know if Apple publishes their Bug Bounty Hall of Fame. I hope they do because it would be cool to see what kinds of new findings are enabled because of these new devices that they're really And they seeing.
1: have big numbers in, in the payouts, so it's always fun to see who gets big payouts.
0: Cha-ching! <laughs> Hey everyone. Thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on Twitter as long as it's still available. Has Elon Musk killed it yet? Uh, I'm at XORRO underscore. Corey is at SECADEPT and the both of us are at hashtag the443podcast. Don't forget to pay your eight bucks for your blue checkmark and you will hear from us next week.